Uh, let's look at Luke uh, chapter 12. It's amazing, even though it's Thanksgiving week and years gone by, not uncommon for us, as David did, look at a psalm, like Psalm 103. That's a glorious psalm. We looked at that briefly. But uh, today, it uh, fits right in line with uh, in our study of the doctor's gospel. As uh, you remember, uh, he is uh, Lord Jesus, in chapter 9, verse 51, began his last journey. He's, he's making the long, winding road journey to Jerusalem, and uh, he is headed to the cross. That's the reason he came. And uh, he is preparing his disciples for what's going to come. And so it's not far akin from our life, for we are on a journey. Some of we studied as a men's group a number of years ago, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Remember that, Dave? That was a great study. And we are on a path, all, every one of us. It may be long, it may be shorter. It's going to end at the gates of the celestial city where we go to that prepared place. Aren't you glad of that? Well, I say a lot of times to the Lord, Lord, thank you that there's a place with my name on it. And it will be there forever because you have ordained it and built it. And someday you're coming and I shall live there. It began in, in a garden. It's going to end in a city. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That's for me, and that's for you if you know Jesus. So we too are on a journey. It's a journey that if the Lord doesn't come, will also lead to our death, which for the Christian, death is the doorway to heaven. You need never fear that. Never. You never see in any of, the, in any of these weeks as the text unfolds, as Jesus goes towards Calvary, one ounce of fear in the Lord, not one. The Lord gives grace, and he gives dying grace. It's one of the great testimonies that a Christian can have is to glorify God, even in that hour of his homegoing or her homegoing. It's such a stark difference than, than those who have no hope in Christ. Well, that's the setting. That's where we are. I've entitled it, One Who Refused to Thank God. Uh, Luke chapter 12, our text is verse 13 through 21. And so let's read that, and then we'll introduce it. Look at, at uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 13. We'll read the next couplet. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Jesus said to them, now look at that, there's a change. Jesus turns and now he's speaking to the crowd there, the thronging thousands. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the, in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
A uh, number, number of years ago, uh, if you found me at uh, leisure time, I love to read. I would, uh, I, it's, uh, would be a common for me to be reading through the John Grisham uh, uh, novels. How many of you read some of those or all those? I mean, this is maybe eight or ten years ago. I think I, I read every one that came out, 12 or 13 or 14 of it. It was so good to to read something other than theology books or commentaries, and in my leisure, I'd work my way through it. The best one by far was the Testament. So how many of you, give me an idea, am I talking to the choir here or maybe three of us? Oh, okay. Grisha, incidentally, is a member of Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Did you know that? I knew one of the girls that was in the Sunday school class, and they grew up together. And he was a lawyer who hated law and wanted to wanted to write. And so in his little law office, he, uh, he wrote, and the best one is the Testament. And Riken, referring to this uh, text, writes and reminded me what Grisham had to say uh, in the Testament. I like to, uh, to begin that way because I think it really speaks well in, in introducing this uh, warning and then the parable that Jesus gives us about this fool and his money. Grisham's novel, uh, as mentioned, opens with the dying words of a man who will soon be parted from all his money. And here are his last thoughts on worth. And I quote from Grisham's opening paragraph. Day, even the last hour now, I'm an old man, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting, and tired of living. I am ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. My assets exceeded $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada, copper in Montana, coffee in Kenya, and coal in Angola, rubber in Malaysia, natural gas in Texas, crude oil in Indonesia, and steel in China. My companies even own other companies. My money is the root of my misery. You see, I had three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children. Six of them are still alive and doing all they can to torment me. I'm estranged from all the wives and all the children. They're gathering here today because I'm dying, and it's time to divide the money. Whether rich or poor, this is how life always ends, with the dead leaving it all behind, and the living dividing whatever is left. Yet the living are not always satisfied with the way things get divided, are they? And that's certainly true as we look at our text and as we just read the text in Luke. For this man is not happy with the way the inheritance from his father is divided between he and his brother. And so he interrupts Jesus and he asked him, would he consider being an arbiter, a judge to rightfully divide or to take more than a share from his brother and give it to him? Jesus, as I said, is now preparing the disciples for what is coming by saying here in our text today that life, we need to embrace this, life does not consist in your possessions. Stuff does not make the stuff of life. It is only stuff, and it will all burn up, and we will leave it all behind, all of it. And so Jesus, in our text today, uh, really is providing a strong word of warning to his disciples as he's making the trod to the city of Jerusalem to die a, on that cross as the Lamb of God 
to take away the sins of the world. I see in our text here, these few verses, there are two parts of a warning. And so Jesus is warning, calling us to beware of the dangers of greed. For I say it again, a life that is truly rich is one that is rich toward God and not things. I'm not saying that things in and of themselves are evil. They're not. The problem lies deeper within. You can have stuff to the glory of God with the right perspective and use it for things eternal. You can have money, whether little or much. Money is a small thing. It's a source of great power and great influence. Our world is a world in America today that falls down before the altar of money and worships money. But I'm saying to you as a Christian, one who has a whole set of different values, according to the word of Jesus, we can use the money that God gives us for things eternal. We can have the right perspective on money and things and stuff. In fact, we can bring an alien sense of righteousness to our usage of it. And so it's don't hear me wrong on this. Pastor wants us all to go out and sell everything. It's a command of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I've never met anybody that would do it. He would certainly have my blessing to do that if he did it for the right reasons, if she did it for the right reasons. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we swim in a dirty, polluted stream, this world in which we live in. And it affects all of us. Today, whether the Steelers win or the Eagles win, and certainly maybe the Bills might win, you know, who knows? But laced within those football games will be commercial after commercial after commercial designed to reach into your heart and mind to say, you will never be content. You will never be satisfied unless you have this car or this pizza or that beer or this, that, or that. And we sit there every, you know, 10 seconds, or not 10 seconds, 10 minutes, and there's another one, another one, another one. Now we are pumped all the time, much more than we would ever imagine. And it creates an unhealthy discontent in your heart and mind. A contentment and a satisfaction that God has made for to be filled only with himself. Only with him. As we walk with him and talk with him and sing to him and pray to him and serve him all the days and moments of our life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And so he warns. Not only did he warn last week, don't fear, remember that? Don't fear man. Man can only kill the body. And then what? Right? After that, I said, there's a whole sermon right there. After that, wait a minute. Whoa, I thought game done, board put away when they kill the body. No, no. After that, fear him was able to not only kill the body, but but throw the soul into the lake of fire. Fear God alone. So he just taught him that. He's just teaching that. Don't fear persecution. Trust God. Okay, did you get the setting? So let's look at the first part of this warning. Jesus warns about greed and his refusal to arbitrate a family dispute. Verses 13, 14, and 15. He absolutely refuses. The request comes from one in the crowd, and I have to ask, was this man listening to Jesus at all? I mean, I've done this. I've taught some pretty heavy things, and somebody will raise their hand. I've done it in my home. I've said, now, boys, this is very important. You've got to get this done. This is important. 
And they'll listen to me a lot. It could be one of those life and death things. And it's sort of like then you get a question like, yes, I won't call which one of my sons. Yes, you know. Uh, when's lunch? You know, it's like that. It's sort of like this here. And we're talking about don't fear those who are going to kill you. You know, keep your eyes on God. Keep faith in Lord, can I have the money he's got? You know, it's like, it's like that. It's like, where is this guy's mind? He's sitting there looking ahead like somebody wondering, is he going to be done in time for, you know. But, you, you know, that's how it, and I go like, what the context here? Was he not listening at all? Wow. Often, I remind, I, I would teach you that religious men were asked to enter into disputes and help. Not uncommon. In fact, it was a sign of respect. A lot of times, a, a rabbi would help settle, but there was a whole judicial system set up to help arbitrate disputes and, and honest differences, and we have that in a fallen world, and, and I've been a party to that. People have said, Pastor, can you help? Sit down. We're brothers, and we have an honest dispute, and we want to honor the Lord with that, and, and a few times it did not work out, but I'm here to say there are a couple of them, and I'm thinking of names right now where God worked, and those men... They hugged each other, we had prayer, and they were both willing to hurt a little bit to find an agreement that would honor God. And I, I, was, I was grateful to be a part of that. I considered that <clears throat> part of a pastoral duty to try and help as a true yokeful in that situation. I'm glad for that. But the Lord is going to refuse here. You see, he's going to refuse yeah, the request, be, because someday his mission would be to judge all people everywhere, but not now. Not now. It's a reminder that every time someone asks you to do something, this is on a smaller plane, it doesn't mean you have to say yes. The Lord turned it down. Sometimes uh, men will be asked to speak all over the place, and I, I encourage them, now wait a minute, uh, be careful. You have other priorities. Should be running all over Galvant, all everywhere. Or are your priorities like that? I said for many, many years, I, I got a lot of invitation to go in the mission field or this and that and this. And I said, how can I do that? I have kids to raise. You know, I, if I, I, I need to spend time. That day may come, and, uh, and we'll be glad to do that, but I can't be gallivanting all over the world. Some men can do I can't. I can't. So thank you, no thank Nice to be wanted, though, isn't it? Nice to be wanted rather than otherwise. But um, he said, no. No, I'm like, no, thank you. Someday I'll be the judge of everyone. Not today. Today, I'm, the, I'm doing the work, salvific work, to seek and to save that which is lost. He's on his way to offer himself as the Lamb of God. And so he turns down this request. Well, Jesus knew, and don't you love this, the wonder of the person of the Lord Jesus under sea. He, he knows, and the man is unnamed, he knows his heart, looks right into his heart, he sees a sin of greed. I mean, it's amazing we, we love the MRI. Faithy had the MRI the other week, and uh, we found out Monday she's got, uh, she's got a cyst in her spine putting pressure on the L4, L5, and uh, it's very, very painful for her. She, even the pain pill last night didn't uh, give her sleep at all, and she had planned to be here, but she, she just couldn't. And we're, thank, thank the Lord, uh, we were able, God worked. We cried out uh, to the neurosurgeon, why the end of February? That's way too long. And December 6th, we have an appointment. God really wonderfully worked. And so she's going to get in and see him take care of that. And uh, we're, we're, we're so thankful for that. And, and we go like, wow, MRI, what a wonderful thing. It looks at the soft tissues and all that. Here's the Lord Jesus standing there. Here's the man teaching prep. And, this, and he looks right in, better than an MRI. 
knows the thoughts of this man, this God-man Jesus. He knows that he's got a problem with greed. He wants more than what he, he's locked on to possessions, money, his brothers, the inheritance. And then he turns to the crowd. He turns to his disciples, and it becomes the setting uh, for what he has to say. Now, he turned the conversation. I just want to say something about this. You see on your sheet, he turned the conversation. You need to learn to be good at this. You can get good at this. And it's a wonderful way to bear witness for Jesus in all of your day-to-day life with your neighbors, the small talk, all that. Learn to do small talk so you can get to the big talk. You've got to talk about stuff that's nonsense so you can get to the really important things. But learn to turn a conversation. My father-in-law was so excellent at this. I used to marvel at him. I'd see him bear witness for Christ in the strangest settings. You know, meeting people, this and that, business-wise. I've seen him in offices. He turned the conversation. He, he was just like this, and all of a sudden, he's talking about Christ. And the business owner's need of a say, have you ever come to know Christ? And they, they would perceive him to be innocent and loving. And, and, they, and they, I'm sure I'm sat there and go like, this man has never heard this before. And he's like, who is this? And, and, and it gave an opportunity. Jesus turns the conversation. See how he did that? Hey, would you judge and, and arbitrate this inheritance? I want more money. Jesus agreed. He said, and he goes, no. But then he turns it to spiritual things. Can you do that? You can do that. You can work on that and get better at that. Instead of talking about a bunch of nothing. I mean, you got to talk a little bit of nothing, but when you talk about nothing, then turn it. The things that have heavenly value of Christ, turn their eyes upon Christ. Jesus did that. What a great example for us. And I just point that to you. He uses the opportunity then to warn the crowd of the danger. It's danger of covetousness or greed. Greed, what is greed? Greed is the desire to have more and more and more and more and more. Excess. It's not your basic needs. We all have to have something, right? Aren't you glad you have something to eat? And covering, that wherein we'll be content with food and covering. It's actually the Greek word covering. And that probably means clothing. Thank the Lord for that. People look better in clothing. I don't think about that much, but it's, it's really true. Thank, I see I go in the men's locker room at the Y to swim. I go, oh, no, please. Oh, they look so much better. Yeah, clothing. And it probably means housing and shelter, covering from the elements. It's a broad term, probably refers to both of that. And we need to have that. But the idea of greed is I just want more and more and more and more and more. And if allowed to go unchecked, it becomes an appetite that will never be satisfied. Never. Some man wrote, it's like having a big stomach with a little mouth. And you can never get it full. And you just keep sucking, sucking, eating, 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 eating all the time. I'm telling you, that is, and now we make it in America, it's the American way. If you do just a little bit more, it's patriotic. Oh, my word. Oh, holy cow. That's the, that's, where, that's the day where we live, where you live, too. That's your address and mine. Never satisfied uh, your appetite. Isn't that terrible thing? Never satisfied. Gnawing all the time. Hunger's a, hunger's a, a wonderful thing. God gave it to us. It's like, you know, put something in there, you know, what's going on up there? We got to eat. But to never be satisfied. You know, they say eat slower too. I, I used to teach our kids because it takes 20 minutes for the signal to go from here to here. You're full. 
It's not like your car, you know, with the fuel tank, you like you feel, oh, it's full. I don't know why, that's a long, why is it 20 minutes? That's like Pony Express or something. You know, like, slow down here. I mean, I think you are full. When you're raising boys, they're never full. You know, it's like they're hanging on the fridge all the time. What do we got here, Mom? You go like, somebody was telling me that the other day. He said, I was hungry all the time. Oh, Mike, you were telling me about that story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's greed. Never content. Oh, it's a spiritual danger. It's horrible. The Romans had a proverb which said that money was like seawater. The more a man drank, the thirstier he became. You know, seawater is like that. Water, water everywhere, but no water to drink. Don't ever drink. If you're ever lost at sea, don't drink seawater. That's a terrible way to die. Uh, uh, so, and Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against. Be on your guard. This is going to be dangerous. You've got to get the guard up. Danger here. Danger. I grew up in Niagara Falls, not Niagara County there, and they'd have all kinds of warning signs. You know, this is, this is a cataract. It's dangerous. Stay back. You can't believe people. I, I, I would go down there and you'd shudder. Hey, get on the other side of the railing and hold on and we'll take your picture. You go like, what is wrong with you? What is wrong? You know, and uh, danger. Danger there. There's danger. And then there, Jesus is saying, this is dangerous stuff. Be careful. Many, many a man or woman, let me put it this way, who have named the name of Christ have fallen off this cliff to the tormentation of their soul. Jesus is teaching. The reason, in three, Jesus tells that life, real life, is not about stuff. It really is not about stuff. Beyond what the essentials you have to have to live. But think about it. Real life is not about stuff. Man heaps up wealth not knowing who will get it. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, the real danger uh, of greed is that it makes you really insensitive to other people. It's like you're trying to pile your stuff up, and, 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 and that's what you're concerned about, and you're really focused on in your perspective of life uh, to the carelessness of those that are around you that have needs. Because very self-focused, very self-indulgent, that's greed and the danger of it. Makes you insensitive to the second great commandment, loving your neighbor as you already love yourself. And we're, we all do it. We're all guilty of this. Don't I say, well, he's not speaking to me. I'm speaking to all of us. We've all sinned in this so many times, it's not funny. Uh, you played the game of Monopoly, right? You play Monopoly? You're sweaty little palms and greedy little, right? That's right. You know what I mean. Park place and you just want to <laughs> pay up, you know? And we do that. We do that. And we have fun with it. So it's just a game. Well, that game brings out a lot of stuff. That's really in us, and it's something that's always there. And we better be, 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 beware because possessions have a tendency to possess us. It's a creeping thing, bit by bit by bit by bit. You say, well, I got that down. Get ready. You're ready to fall. Pride goes before a fall. And they'll possess you. They will if you let them. That's what you're saying. This is dangerous stuff. It is. I've said before how often I feel that way with stuff. You know, you, you save up, you, you get it, you think about it a lot, you think it's going to be great, and after this long, you throw it in the corner. It goes in the closet, 
or eventually in our house goes in a bag and I take it to Salvation Army. I got four more bags. It costs a lot more coming in than what we're doing going out. They give us 10 cents for a coat and 50. You know, like, how does this work? You know? And that's sort of the way it is. Have you figured that out? And the stuff around the house and the stuff we buy, it needs maintenance. I'm going like, I'm the maintenance guy. I got this list of stuff. I mean, if I didn't have all this stuff, like the cars, you know, it's great. Beats walking. I'm for that, right? Um, well, you got to do all this stuff with the cars. Jonathan called from, I, I really don't like that. When he calls me from North Carolina with a car problem. That happened last night again. Hey, the engine is running really rough. Okay, I'm, you know, 400 miles away. I can't do anything, you know. Uh, and then the pool, I'm, that, uh, the boy, you're the pool guy, Dad. And you got the lawn boy, the pool guy, the painter, the wallpaper hanger, the vacuum. Oh, and this broke. Can you fix it? Where's the glue? Can you do this? And what about the windows? Do you do windows? You know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, have you figured that out? And I go, like, if, I, you know, if we lived in a tent, maybe. Maybe you wouldn't. Uh, you, you know, it, 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 figure that out and embrace that and recognize that. Because the, the, the more that you have, the more that it can have you. I know that. I know that battle. One man writes, greed can create a distortion about what life is because the definition of life is not found in stuff. It's found in relationships. Relationships are the things, especially our a relationship with God in his will. That's what he made us for. And not in stuff. The shortest distance between London and Paris, there was a, a, uh, uh, there was a, a, uh, a contest that you could submit to the London newspaper at that time. I probably told you this before, but I think it's great. What's the shortest distance between London and Paris? Now we go, it's the channel, you know. You know that. The pros know what that is. And the, the, the saying that won, the shortest distance between London and Paris is good conversation. Have you ever been traveling hundreds of miles with your friends and family and you're engrossed in the conversation? I can't believe we're here already. You know, it's relationship. It's relationship. And the ultimate relationship, God made us for himself. Isn't that stuff? Dr. Bach writes, to define life in terms of things is the ultimate reversal of the creature serving the creation and ignoring the creator. Wow, that's a statement. Having more than we need does not add anything to our lives doesn't add anything. How can we find life in the things we consume? That's a, that's a grotesque thought. It is true that a certain minimum of material goods are necessary for life, of course, but it is not true that the greater abundance of goods means greater abundance of life. That's not true. Well, so Jesus warns about greed. He refuses to arbitrate. Look at the second part of the warning. Uh, he tells uh, a story. It's a parable about a man uh, who had too much. J.C. Riley, who was a pastor in Liverpool, uh, England, once wrote, the more acres a man has, the more cares. Boy, that's true. Possessions do not add life to us. In fact, he wrote, they usually end up taking life away. How's that? We've got to maintain this stuff. Or it occupies us. Or we go away and we worry about it. You know, is someone breaking into my house? And I'll say that. I got a, we got a call a week ago from Faithy's sister, Debbie. She was brokenhearted. She said, I came home from school. She had a public school teacher down in Florida. She came home. She's single. 
And I uh, came about 8.30, and somebody had broken into her condominium down in Fort Myers, Florida. Went right through the kitchen window and ransacked the place and stole all of her jewelry and uh, took eight or $900 in cash, dumped all the drawers out, cut the screen, and jumped down the front, went in the parking lot, took off. And she's not been right since. She, not that she possesses, she never had anything like that happen. And insurance, if you don't list it per item above a couple hundred bucks or something, they'll pay almost, she lost thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. Some guy in there, maybe three, four, ten minutes, they know exactly where to go, they dump the drawers over, they grab the stuff and run. She, she went to her girlfriend's and she's been staying there ever since and said to me on the phone, and I prayed with her, we talked, I don't know how I can go back there. I, you know, I've, she's never been married, and always alone, a great teacher. She said, and, and, and so on. And, and we do, we, with right. You say, well, Jesus said, no, be careful about your wealth where rust happens and moth can eat it and people break in and steal it. And, and so, we, well, we'll insure it, we'll do this and that. And possessions don't add life to us. In fact, they usually end up taking it away by by thinking about how can we protect it and all that. All life is found in God, not in us or, or anything in the world. And more does not equal more life. Well, in the parable in 16 through 20, A, Jesus tells the parable of the wealthy miser. Now, this man had everything. He had everything, yet he kept accumulating more and more and more and more. Verse 16, the Lord begins the story. Now, this is a remarkable story. Uh, he, Jesus tells him a parable saying, the land, notice, it wasn't his skill, his expertise, or this or that. It was, in this sense, the land that God had given and blessed. The land produced an enormous crop. It was plentiful. And so we might say that it was a bumper harvest. It was the land, not his direct, immediate efforts. It was the blessing, God's blessing of the soil, the rain, the sunshine, his common grace. And yet in his thinking, as Jesus goes on to tell this story, we find his thinking is grossly flawed. He had an excessive attachment to wealth. Now here it is, I'm going to say it a couple times. He, he misidentified the problem. He thought he had a storage problem. He did. He thought he had a storage problem. He had a gross spiritual problem. And we can have that same mentality. You know, uh, one man in prep for this sermon said that never has there been a church as wealthy as the 21st century evangelical church in the West. We're wealthy by comparison of 21 centuries of church history, of Christians that have gone on before. And yet there's gross discontentment. There's an undue holding on. A man continued to write, how come... Why, if, that, if we are so wealthy, why is it then less than 4% of our incomes and our wealth are given to the work of the ministry? It's a shame. It's a, sh it's, it's a shame. It's embarrassing. It's not right. This man thought he had a storage problem. He really had a gross spiritual problem, didn't he? The man's land produced a bumper harvest. Now let's look at, his, look at the dilemma. And notice he's talking to himself. He's mumbling. It's an interesting the way the Lord tells this story. 
Uh, he is reporting what the man is saying to himself, and yet in the midst of all of it, God is listening to it all. It's, it's, it's interesting, it's the, the, the dynamics within this parable. And God renders a, a, a decision about this too. So what, is the, what does the Lord say about this man in verse 17 and following? Uh, verse 17, and he thought to himself, here's his words, they're in quote, what shall I do? There's his problem, he thinks he has it. I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. He develops a plan. Tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I'll store my grain and my goods. This, man's, uh, this man came by wealth honestly. He didn't steal it. Uh, because God's provision and God's kindness to him blessed him. And yet, such a blessing still can present a problem for stewardship. The man is flawed in his thinking. A, he was thankless. This is not a storage problem, a spiritual problem. He should have given praise to God. We don't hear one word of it. Praise be to God. Can you believe this bumper harvest? Wow. Like the pilgrims did in 1621, the first Thanksgiving there in New England, in Plymouth. They give thanks after coming through the starving season of that winter where many died. And they gave thanks to God. Now one day it went on for days. When that, that's great. I like that idea, right? They ate for days with the Indians, joined them. They gave thanks to God for what God had done. Not a hint of it here. This Thanksgiving, when you sit down and enjoy that, don't be a no-show in giving thanks to God. Thank Him for the bounty. Thank Him for all of life. Thank Him for each other there. Thank Him and spend time reflecting on that. But then as Christians, don't do that just on Thanksgiving Day. Right, it should be every day is Thanksgiving Day. Give thanks for all things, for this is God's will concerning you in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in another place. This man was thanks, thankless. He was an ingrate. He should have given praise and thanks to God, but he refused. He could have given a large gift to the priest as a gift to God, but he did not. He was a miser. He was self-focused. He was thankless. But B, he was also selfish, wasn't he? He could have given a large portion to the poor, but he didn't. He didn't even think about him. Those lesser and having not enough around him, his design was to keep it all for himself. He's selfish. Have you come to learn to hate the sin of selfishness? I pray the Lord roots it out of me just about every day. It stinks like rotten flesh. We see it in our children when we raise them, don't we? We do. And we are big kids, and we can be utterly selfish as well. It reeks. This man, to, he's unthankful. This man, he's selfish to the core. It could have been a great blessing. That grain in the bellies of those that were hungry was a far safer place in God's eye to put that grain than in a bigger barn. You see, his barns were already full. It wasn't like he needed it anymore. He ripped it down, built bigger ones to store it all for himself. He's selfish, and I hate that in me, and I hate selfishness. Well, look at even the number of words. There are 54 words in this parable. You could count them later in the original. 18 of the words are first person. 
I, me, myself. You know what that is? Every third word, it's, he's talking to himself, about himself. Me, myself, and I, kind of a thing. Utterly selfish. He thought, uh, uh, a third thing about his perspective, he was anxious by just, just looking after his stuff. Verse 17, what shall I do? He's worried about his stuff. I mean, he's got more than enough, more than a lever could eat, or, 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 and he's worried about it. They're my crops. Look at the word my. My barns, my grain, my goods. He, he, he thought that he was, he was the owner. He thought he was the owner of all. He's not the owner. Listen, we don't own anything. You don't even own your house. You say, well, Pastor, you're not right, because uh, the bank sent me the title to my car after I paid 48 easy ones. Incidentally, never made an easy one. And they said, I owned it now. Here's it. Paid in full. You don't even own that. Listen, you don't take that with you. We came naked, we leave naked, and there's no uh, U-Hauls ever following a hearse. I've conducted many funerals. Never saw it. And yours won't be the first. In fact, uh, it'll be a suit. If it's a guy, if you wear a suit, they don't even have pockets in. You don't need pockets. You don't, you don't own it. I've laughed how many times those big crows sit on the top of my house in the morning. They make more fuss. I like to shoot some of them. Don't tell anybody I said that. But they, they, I, they own the place. I don't own it. They're there. They're there all the time. They're huge things. Make such a horrible noise. Walking away and this and that. Throw a rock at him, he can't hit him. I shot, my father shot one once we were out hunting. Thing came down like a helicopter. Hey, watch that crow. Boom. You could do that up in New York State. So don't report me at this point. Anyway, they think they own it. They'll probably be there longer than me. I think they live forever, those things. You don't own a thing. This guy thought he owned all. This is my stuff. He, he needed to learn to think of himself as a steward. For the Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything is his. And say, so, well, even if your name is on it, well, they're going to white it out. They're going to white, your kids will white it out and it will be theirs. Or someone else's. Or the bank's. Or something. Get the right view of stuff. I have to come hard and strong to my own heart and to all our hearts on this because we live in a world that is so diametrically opposite in its teaching in, in the forces overwhelming at point. Well, D, he's, what else is this guy? He's self-indulgent. He looked forward to years of uh, pleasure. Wine, women, and song, we say. That's what he's saying here in the text. I'll be able to do this for years. I'll take it easy. I'll get, sit back. He's filled with self-indulgence. And finally, E, he's presumptuous, isn't he? For he assumed, he assumed that he would live on for many years. And he says, and I, in verse 19, and I will say to my soul, isn't it interesting, the words, the suke, some of you took psychology, suke, I say to my soul, suke, what, what, what's he going to say to himself? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Oh, what a 401 he has. Wow, he's got investments, he's got everything, Wow. Wow, relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's his attitude. He's presumptuous. The man's real dilemma was not how to build bigger barns, but really how to give it all away, the excess, and not to hoard it for himself. You see, he was doing what Jesus was warning us and his disciples in the context of what not to do. 
He was making his money his life. And it's a bad trade, Jesus said. Why? Because you can't take any of it with you. You can't use any of it to even get admission into heaven. It's a horrible trade. And life is so much more precious and wonderful and that God has designed us for himself to have that relationship through Christ with him because of the cross and to enjoy each other as brothers and sisters, and to be a blessing in relationship. That's the essence of life, not stuff. It's all going to burn up. And he made a bad trade, is what he's saying. And for God has one word in verse 20. Don't you look at this? God is listening to him. He's thinking. He's talking to himself. It's filled with self. Jesus says in verse 20, but God said to him, God overhears everything, doesn't he? Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Fool, required, <clears throat> required. You see, the, the point is the heavenly call for death has been made and it will be now executed. Required is a banker's term. The loan is now due. That's it. That's the word in the Greek used for the loan is now due. A farmer would borrow money to buy a seed, he would plant his seed, and then at the end of the harvest seed time, he'd bring the harvest in, and he'd go down and pay off his obligations, primarily, principally, to the banker who funded the purchase of the seed and the fertilizer and the fuel, and the loan would be satisfied. The loan was required at harvest time. It's a reminder. It's a reminder to us, is it not, that uh, our life is simply on loan to us. That's a different way of thinking about it. Even our life, our body, is not who we are, is on loan. And some, at one moment, it's already, for, already ordained the exact moment of the Lord's coming or our going to heaven, if you know Jesus as your Savior. The moment's already laid out. You can't add an hour to it, Jesus said in another place. And the word will go out, his soul is required now. He thought he had all this time. He thought he had years. He didn't know he had but hours. Now I always think of my father's death, very untimely death, you know, very similar situation. My father had just come to know Christ, the Lord of Savior, and was building for retirement, building his business, just turned 54 years old. Now I've eclipsed his years. That's a funny feeling. Totally unexpected. Totally. He had just had a physical two weeks earlier. doctor said, Eddie, you're going to live forever. He did. You're going to live forever. And on December the 24th, 1983, about 9.30 in the morning, my father's soul was required. And there was nothing they could do. The kids were there. My sister was a registered nurse. CPR and all, gone. He, he was saving up for retirement. He was saving up building a business. He, was, he said, you know, I'm putting all this money here, maxing out Social Security. Never received a dime of it. Never. This man, God says, he's a fool. He traded the preciousness and the wonder of life, the relationship with God and with others, and being a blessing and helping that he could have been because he is utterly wrong in his perspective. Don't you do it, Jesus is saying to his disciples. Don't you do this. 
Rather, be rich toward God. And B, Jesus calls us to live differently. He desires us to be rich toward him. That's the final punctuation of this couplet, verse 21. So, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself. Self. It's either self or it's God. And is not rich toward God. What has God given you that God wants you to give away? Don't be stingy. I would urge you. I would urge you not to be stingy. Let me close uh, with, the, uh, with uh, the final words of that Grisham's The Testament and then a couple lessons for life. Then we're going to sing a song and we'll be done. But Grisham closed the book, and it's uh, rather surprising, um, uh, with it uh, in just this way. My sermon began with a scene from Grisham's best-selling novel, The Testament, in which a, a dying billionaire dies unloved, but not alone. Greedy relatives gather around his bedside, hoping for their share of the massive inheritance. But the book has a surprise ending. After the old man dies, the family gathers to read his last will and testament, signed shortly before his death. To their complete shock, the entire fortune is granted to an illegitimate daughter. None of them is ever known. It turns out that this unexpected heiress is serving as a Christian missionary to people in Brazil. A lawyer is dispatched to find her so that she can sign the necessary paperwork. And when he finally tracks her down in the jungles of the Amazon, she, the woman refuses to accept any part of the inheritance. The lawyer is absolutely dumbfounded, of course, because uh, from his perspective, life consists in the abundance of one's possessions. Yet because of her faith in Christ, the missionary has a completely different set of priorities. And she says uh, to him, you worship money. You're part of a culture where everything is measured by money. It's a religion. But the missionary belongs to a different religion and serves a different God. So in the end, she decides to put every last penny into a trust for the, whole, for, for the worldwide work of the gospel, including practical care for poor people in Brazil. And he asks in closing, what is, and I ask, what has God given you to give away? This is not... Uh, this is not how much you have or do not have, but your attitude about what you do not have and your generosity with what you do have. Jesus is calling you and I to give more and more to God to the point of costly personal sacrifice. You would be a fool not to give everything you are and everything you have. One who refused to thank God. Lessons for our life quickly. Number, number one, not only this week, Thanksgiving week, but every week, every week, recognize your stewardship of God's stuff. It's his. And thank him for it. And, and hold it loosely. Don't hold it tight. Don't hold on so tight. It's not yours. It's not mine. Be willing to give it up if he should so ask you to do that. Not just this week. Recognize, Lord, it's yours. All that I am, all that I have, all that I ever hope to be. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Number two, God calls us as Christians to be content with what we have. 
Hebrews 13 tells us that as a command. Be content. Oh, we live in such a discontented day, don't we? And when we have so much stuff, and yet the discontentment levels are so high. And in Hebrews 13, be content with such things as you have, chiefly there in that text, because we have everything in Jesus. Because I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so for us to have everything in Jesus, life, salvation, fullness, eternal life, and to walk around with a case of the gripes and the complaints and the discontent, it's, 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 it's an embarrassment. It's wrong thinking. It's skewed. And we're all capable of it, and we've all done it. Be content. He calls us to. Number three, instead of finding happiness and keeping wealth, like uh, the miser, instead of trying to find it, and you'll never find it that way, never, find happiness in giving. For Acts 20, we're reminded, for it was Jesus that said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more, more happy, more joyful, more glorious to give than to receive. Number four, aim to be rich toward God. Aim to be rich toward Him. A reminder in verse 21 there, Jesus said, it's either God or self. Be like Jesus. He gave it all to his Father for us. And we, we need, because of his grace and his goodness, because of 2 Corinthians 8.19, though he is rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that we might become rich. Because of the cross, we ought to live just that way by his grace. And he wants to do that in us. We can't do it of ourselves. We're failures at it. But he'll do it in you if you surrender it to him. And number five and last, perhaps God has spoken to your heart today. I hope he's spoken to all our hearts and revealed maybe greed and selfishness and covetous heart. And maybe he's done that because that's really been your idol and you're not saved. You need to come to Jesus. A simple prayer of faith. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for my sin. You paid the price. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. Lord, we thank you now for this wonderful text, and it's so convicting.